Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone. I'm coming to you from Macquarie University, and I'm here today with Roy Hay, who's an honorary fellow at Deakin University and also the author of Aboriginal People and Australian Football in the 19th Century. They did not come from nowhere. Thank you very much for joining us, Roy. Thanks, Keith, for the opportunity. This is a, a, an auspicious time in many ways for the Aboriginal people of Australia. So I think we're quite topical. I, I agree, um, and I have to admit, I had a. It was a really a real pleasure to read this book. I, I don't say that about it about every book I read, but I really enjoyed uh, reading this because I thought it was so very topical and. and really present if people aren't aware um, the, 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 the debate over um, Aboriginal land rights and, and the specific role of Aboriginal people in the Australian constitution is, is very uh, a la moment here in Australia. Uh, so, so Roy, I think I should start out by asking you first how you developed this project. Where did it come from? Well, its origin is probably somewhere way back about uh, 2008 when the previous round of debates about the relationship between the games that Indigenous people played in Australia and the origins of the modern code of Australian rules football. Um, Was there a link between them? Uh, And if so, how did that come about? And uh, Martin Flanagan, who was one of the uh, people who was heavily involved in the issue, he wrote um, a brilliant book called The Call, really focused on uh, Tom Wills, um, who was widely regarded by that time as uh, the founder of Australian rules football. and Martin had a blog, and a fellow called Dennis from Dimbula replied to the blog, and he said, look, um, this is in the western district of Victoria, um, an area which was subject to some of the greatest massacres in the history of uh, indigenous um, involvement with the white men. Um, and he uh, um said that in the 60s, we had an old fellow called Morris Marks who played uh, football uh, with a local team in Dimbula, and he was Aboriginal. And the folks who were watching him, uh, and they're not far away from where Tom Wills lived, they would say things like, "Um, well, he ought to be good. It's their game. And Dennis wondered, where did the old folks get that idea from? Because uh, they didn't read Martin Flanagan. They didn't know uh, anything. They had no Rosetta Stone to um, 
uh, Actus, the, um, the document for the time. Um, and I felt when I was reading the the um, the blog that Dennis deserved an answer, and I couldn't give it to him at the time. But since um, the marvelous uh, digitization of Australian newspapers has been conducted by uh, the National Library and their Trove collection, I think now we can give Dennis an answer, and it's a very different answer from the conventional one. Um, because the Aboriginal people uh, could be read about in the sports pages of the contemporary newspapers, and this is going back to um, the middle of the 19th century. Um, and the people from Dimbula um, did play alongside Aboriginal players at that time, something we hardly know about. Um, and Aboriginal people appear in the sports pages and are treated with sometimes very grudging respect, but with respect at a time when everything else about them is really highly derogatory and often racist. So um, looking at the newspapers for the Dimbula area, you can find uh, indigenous players from the Ebenezer Mission actually being paid to play for Dimbula and Japaret and Antwerp uh, in the local leagues. Uh, the, the mission there is, is so small that they never have enough people to form a team. But at other uh, missions and stations around the periphery of Victoria, you can find uh, indigenous people breaking into the white man's game, first of all as individuals, but then forming teams, playing locally, um, getting into local leagues and, and actually winning those leagues. So the story is all there. It just needed um, finding out and putting together. So that's really where it all began. Yeah, uh, for people who are who are um, invested in the debate, I, I would I would point out for them this is not principally a, a book about Marnbrook. You you do get to it in the in the later chapters of the book, the later section of the book, and I and I, I hope we can talk about that towards the end, but. But your book's really about something different, right? So I, I think it's important to highlight that for, for readers. This is not about um, uh, the, the story maybe you might have heard where indigenous Australians invent the game and then they disappear for uh, almost a century and then they reappear. This is a, a, real, a real recovery of a missing, of a missing history, right? Absolutely, Keith. That's exactly what it's about. Can I say just a little bit about the structure of the book at this point? Yes, um, please do. Yes. Uh, the few remaining indigenous people were, by the mid to late 19th century, were confined to a series of missions and stations around the periphery of Victoria. Um, and I, I've structured the book around a, an examination of what went on in these uh, local areas over the period from about the 1860s uh, through to the First World War. So in, in the Western District, you have uh, a, a, a mission at uh, Lake Conda, 
You have uh, one at Ebenezer, the one I mentioned. You have another one at Framlingham, which is actually a station run by directly by the Board for the Protection of uh, Aboriginal People. Then there are two in east uh, in east of Melbourne in in Gippsland. One at Lake Tyres, uh, one at Lake Wellington called Ramahyuk. Uh, and then there's one in the upper Yarra Valley, quite relatively close uh, to Melbourne, about 60 kilometers from the CBD. Um, and then the, there is another one, perhaps one of the most successful in terms of Aboriginal involvement in football, at Kamaragunja, which is actually just over the Murray River into southern New South Wales. And for people who, for whom the geography of Victoria and Australia may be uh, a bit opaque, southern New South Wales tended to be orientated towards Melbourne rather than towards Sydney in the 19th century. Um, and hence, the people at Kamaragunja took up the... Uh, uh, the Melbourne code of, of football rather than rugby, uh, which became the main game of Sydney and, uh, and New South Wales. So we look at all the uh, different uh, stations and tease out their individual history. And having done that, I then look at some of the names and the people uh, who were involved because we've got families involved in the game at these various places. And some of them I can trace from, um, from a, a direct uh, descendant of William Barrack, who was the man who made a treaty, as he thought, or um, an arrangement with John Batman, one of the first white men to settle in, Mel in the Melbourne area. Um, to allow the white men to access his land, uh, an agreement which uh, worked to his disadvantage. Um, but uh, from William Barrack's sister, we can trace the Aboriginal lineage of involvement in football all the way down to Auntie Joy Murphy Wandon, who does the welcome to country at uh, Indigenous rounds and uh, highlight games in uh, Australian rules to this day. Um, and so having talked about the families, I, I then have a much briefer um, survey of what happened in South Australia and in Western Australia, where the trajectory of the game is somewhat different. Um, there's very early evidence of uh, Aboriginal people playing football in uh, in Adelaide and South Australia, but the same sort of story in the missions, although one or two of the uh, better uh, Aboriginal players actually forced their way into the top level in, in South Australia in the latter part of the 19th century, something which is extraordinarily difficult uh, to do because the gatekeepers of the white game uh, are in, in Victoria are very resistant, uh, and I can talk about that in, in, in detail later. And then uh, there is a much briefer account of developments in Western Australia. And it's only after telling this story in a fair amount of empirical detail 
that I then have a look at general debates about where the modern sports came from, trying to ask Australian writers and uh, um, people who want to talk about this um, to look more broadly at the foundation stories um, the background around the world rather than myopically um, concentrating on uh, the origins of Australia of Australian rules. And uh, the, the final section looks at the Man Group debate. I didn't want to put that up front because I felt that that would divert attention from the substance of the book, which to my mind is a much more noble, uh, empowering story about Aboriginal agency uh, rather than something uh, where they are treated as, as, if you like, victims of uh, white oppression solely. Uh, I, I, when I was reading it, I, I, I thought that that was a clever strategy um, because certainly, and, and let's let's put a pin in Marnbrook for a minute. That way, we don't get too too deep into that. Because I, I think you're right when you, you say the real strength of, of the work and what I found just absolutely incredible is the amount of empirical work that you're able to do. And, and it, it's clear that Trove just has changed the way in which we can do history in, in some respect. And I, I wonder if you might say a little something about that in, in terms of your research methods. Like how did Trove make this project possible in a way that it might not have been I don't know, 10 years ago. Well, yes, you, you hit the nail on the head, uh, Keith. The, Trove has this, um, they have digitized um, no, new, uh, numerous uh, uh, Australian newspapers from uh, the early, uh, very early 19th century all the way through until they run into the um, copyright issues in the late 20th century. So for that period, you have access to newspapers on a, a scale that allows you to do Boolean searches. In other words, you can stick in two or three words and the electronic system will give you as many references as it can find um, that relate to these matters. Now, um, the early ones you come across are usually highly relevant, um, but if if you are doing a search like that, you will also get a lot of issue, a lot of uh, material where the words you have used just happen to appear in the same article or the same part of the paper, but are not directly uh, related. I mean, just to take. Um, one example, um, if you put Aborigines and football, um, you get uh, some direct references uh, Im immediately, but then you will get other um, material where the two words just happen to be in the same place. There are various problems with uh, a Trove system. Um, the optical character recognition system they use um, was applied to, in many cases, to newspapers that were already on microfilm. So you're one remove already away from the hard copy print uh, volume. 
the other thing is that uh, the optical character recognition system has very great difficulty in dealing with um, certain letters in the early papers, uh, partly because the newsprint uh, was was uh, difficult uh, to. Um, it wasn't as, as straightforward and as consistent as it is uh, today. Uh, and, and so you get um, something that was pointed out to, to me by uh, uh, Gillian Hibbins. She spotted a typo where I had written foothall um, rather than football in one of my um, articles. And I thought, you know, that's brilliant. Um, so I stuck in foothold and found uh, numerous extra references to what was actually football. <laughs> um, so the, with its problems, it's still an incredibly valuable source. And of course, Australians being besotted by sport from the very earliest days, the sports pages in the newspapers were um, something that developed very, very early in the piece. And um, as a result, you could read about indigenous uh, foot, uh, people taking part in cricket and football at a time when the only other references to them would likely be about um, outrages that they had committed or very occasionally outrages that had been committed against them. In the newspapers, they were often treated with at least grudging respect and uh, in some cases uh, were actually celebrated for their skills and their contribution to the games in which they were taking part. Uh, and that comes that comes out very clearly in your work, showing... Uh, I think um, not only the the important role that sports was playing uh, in the press at the time and how perhaps this is one of the few avenues in which indigenous people could find uh, positive reference to themselves in the press, but also um, just the way in which sport became a vehicle for uh, demonstration of indigenous achieve, achievement, not only within the missions, but also outside of the missions. So I wonder... Could yeah. we uh, talk a little bit about sport in the missions? Because probably this is something that um, some of our our listeners haven't uh, encountered before. What types of sports were happening out of these stations? Uh, why were sports happening there? And, and what kind of uh, indigenous agency can we see there by looking at these sports? Um well, the, the prime sports on which I have concentrated are cricket and football. Uh, one of my uh, predecessors in writing in this area is the, Bernard Wimpress from South Australia, who wrote an incredible book on, in the days before uh, Trove existed. So it was all done by um, searching in hard copy and microfilm newspapers um, called Passport to Nowhere. Um, beginning with the cricket team, the Aboriginal cricket team that went to England in 1868, uh, be before uh, white Australian cricketers uh, ventured overseas in that way. Um, and he pointed out that uh, thereafter, 
um, uh, Aborigines uh, were, were almost totally excluded uh, from cricket. And even to this day, um, there is hardly any Aboriginal representation at the higher levels of, of, of cricket in this country. Um, whereas the trajectory of football was quite different, um, uh, as I've tried to explain in the book, that um, in the missions and stations, they saw the white men playing their game. Uh, they decided that they had skills that they could bring to it, and they forced their way into it, as I say, first of all, as individuals, because the numbers are so small that it is extraordinarily difficult to get a, a, a full team together. But eventually they do that. And um, uh, the uh, result is that their exploits are um, reported in the newspapers. Um, if I can just give a single example, Keith, yes, that yes. Uh, is, is important here. One of Tom Wills' closest uh, contemporaries uh, was a fellow called George Reynolds Rippon. The pair of them actually issued a challenge to all comers to play um, two-person two cricket against any other two um, for a wager of uh, five pounds. I don't think they got any takers, but um, the two of them played cricket in Geelong um, and uh, they, they were uh, highly influential in, in the, the early days. Now, Ripon um, became uh, a, a correspondent and then the editor of the Geelong Advertiser. But then he moved to Hamilton, where he did the same uh, role with the Hamilton Spectator in the Western District and eventually became proprietor of the paper. And he wrote... Um, extremely sympathetically about the Aboriginal teams and players um, that he came across and, and played against in, in many cases. Um, so far from uh, being uh, a, a, a racist critic of um, in, Indigenous people, here you had the editor of a newspaper um, writing, as I say, sympathetically and uh, um, in, in uh, an encouraging way about uh, the people he came up against as, as a cricketer and as a journalist. Um, so we get a much more rounded picture uh, of uh, Aboriginal uh, involvement, Aboriginal agency um, through that kind of treatment in the newspapers. <clears throat> One of the uh, ways that your your work, I think, um, you have a, a a problem that you that you mention many times with sources, and in, in in that there aren't really very many uh, indigenous voices. And, Absolutely, yeah. And by using this digitized trove record you're able to kind of triangulate and maybe get um, approach some of these questions of, of source problems a bit differently. But throughout the book, you talk very, I think, very sensitively about this question of indigenous agency. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you approach that question 
So we know from the records that indigenous people are playing sport, but what did they gain from it? And you talk about it at various points throughout the book, um, but I was hoping you could you could uh, pull it together here for us now. Yeah, I, I mean, it, as you would appreciate, uh, Keith, it's it's a bit frustrating at times because all the material we have is really about indigenous people rather than by indigenous people. There were occasions when they managed to get into the press with um, uh, activities and uh, indications of what they were doing. There was a, a, a famous, uh, what's often described as a rebellion at, uh, at Corinderk in the Upper Yarra Valley when William Barak and others um, uh, tried over a substantial period um, to uh, get John Green, who was the superintendent of um, that particular station, uh, reinstated after the board uh, for the protection of Aborigines got rid of him, basically because Green was way ahead of his time in, in the he believed that the Aboriginal people themselves could run an efficient, uh, productive, valuable enterprise if you gave them their head and allowed them to do so, um, which was not the way um, the uh, the majority of people uh, thought about Indigenous people at the time. And uh, so you're, you're able to tease out uh, from the record what Aboriginal people did in these circumstances. Um, and it's perfectly clear that they took the initiative in forming their, their teams. Many of the people who were, uh, perhaps I should say, some of the people who were involved in the football and cricket were also heavily involved in the politics and the um, uh, social, broader social activities um, of the missions and, 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 and stations. Some of them, uh, and, and perhaps at this point, uh, I could introduce Albert Pompey Austin. I'm who's hoping we're getting to talk about him. Yeah, <laughs> um, occupies a substantial part of this book. This is a man for whom, uh, 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 can I just add a little bit here? I, I was reading, I think it's Andrew Roberts' biography of Churchill about the time when I was uh, finishing the book. And he had a million and a half words of, of Churchill's own, um, a thousand biographies, um, uh, visual material, audio material, and goodness knows what all. For Albert Pompey Austin, who played one game at the top level for Geelong in the 19th century, I had half a sentence of reported speech. Um, and yet I've been able to, using Trove and other sources, um, reconstruct a fair bit of this amazing individual who was not just a cricketer and a footballer, but a pedestrian, uh, in other words, an athlete before athletics became an amateur sport, a top-class hurdler and runner on the flat. Um, he was... Uh, he used some of his winnings to buy a racehorse and won a hurdle race 
as the jockey on his own horse. Uh, he was a horse thief at times, because how did you get round Victoria? You had to borrow a horse or a saddle, um, and sometimes he fell foul of the law. He was um, an artist. He delivered one of his paintings to a local newspaper who poured a bit of scorn on it. But I suspect if he'd done that today, he would have been a multimillionaire on the strength of his uh, artistic talents as well. He was um, an explorer. He led an expedition from Camperdown in the Western District uh, to the Kimberleys in the northwest of Australia and gets a mention in uh, Mary Durack's book, Kings in Grass Castles, where her father welcomed the phenomenal uh, Aborigine Pompey Austin, who was singing music hall songs hot off the London stage. Um, where did he get that from? He, uh, uh, on one occasion in, in Ballarat, he can be found on what was called the corner, which is probably the equivalent of Hyde Park Corner in London, where you can get up on your soapbox and talk to the crowd. And he is, this is in the 1880s, he's talking to the crowd about the political situation and the prospects for war. But no money's coming in. And he looks at his audience, and um, there's a bunch of Scots in, in the audience, you know, people with short arms and long pockets. So what does he do? He breaks into Scottish songs and starts singing about the beauties of the Scottish countryside. This is a man, a, a real polymath, who ought to be better known. He's as important um, in the 19th century in many ways as Tommy Wills. Um, it just happened to be born black and uh, subject all of the uh, uh, disadvantages that flowed from that. But a marvelous human being. And uh, as I say in the book repeatedly, um, the, what the indigenous people were able to do within a generation of the massacres and what some people call the genocide, um, was a triumph of the human spirit. In Pompey's story, I, I I would like to read a biography about Pompey just because um, he seems like such a, an engaging uh, human being, someone who, no matter the circumstances, seemed to to have the wiles about him to 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 make the best of it. Um, yeah. Absolutely, Keith. And, and uh, I mean, you get a range of responses to the uh, white man's ar a arrival, invasion, if you like, of the Western District. I mean, um, and, and the, the people that I am most intrigued by are those like Pompey who saw the white men at their games and activities and thought we could do that and force their way into it. Um, and it's not just in, in, in football. And, and I mean, the, there is a broader reconsideration of Aboriginal agency going on um, in uh, historiography today. Um, and 
it's, I mean, something which I, I have to say that I, I used to teach Aboriginal economic history at Deakin University way back uh, many years ago now. And one of the things that um, I tried to emphasize was the way that Indigenous people um, modified, borrowed, um, adapted those elements of uh, this oppressive white society, which they found useful for their purposes um, and, and used these, whether this was physical artifacts like axes and, um, and saws and things like that, or whether it was uh, the Europeans' activities, which they then adapted and uh, in curious ways and often very different ways melded with their traditional knowledge. Um, the idea that they were somehow um, uh, just passive uh, ab absorbers of uh, white men's rule, I think, is a, a travesty of what was actually happening. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's one of the things that... Uh, appeals to me about your work, which is it, it takes the kind of I, the traditional narrative of the spread of sports to non-white peoples, uh, which is typically that sports is used as a tool of colonialism, right? It co colonizes and teaches the values of the colonial state mm. to, to, to non-white people um, and turns it on its head a little bit instead of, of the, 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 whites in the mission trying to teach sports we find indigenous people adopting sports for their own purposes and instead of um whites in the mission trying to 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 um you know in, in just force it in, a, in an impressive way a certain variety a certain way of playing sports instead we find indigenous people uh picking up sports of their own volition through their own agency again, for, for their own purposes. I, so that, that's yeah. one of the things when I was reading your book that was really in, interesting to me and I think spoke to a way in which people who maybe aren't interested in Australian history per se, but are interested in sports more broadly, people working on sports in Africa and in Latin America, uh, even sports in working class areas uh, might take this kind of methodology and apply it to their own studies. Yeah, uh, that's uh, very perceptive, Keith, and, and something which I definitely was trying to get across. Just let me add a couple of little bits. I mean, uh, there is this idea of sport and a civilizing mission, but given that sport was connected with uh, gambling and um, uh, drinking and, and so on, um, for the white men, the, there was a great ambivalence about uh, the value of sport in the mid nineteenth century, um, you know, and the um, th some of the the the, uh, the mission superintendents, um, having sometimes started and encouraged um, sport, then turned against it. Um, Hagenauer at um, uh, Ramachuk. Um, uh, uh, Matthews at, at Maloga, Kamaragunja, um, uh, even William Goodall, who was the manager at Framlingham and uh, 
in many ways, an archetypal um, a muscular Christian. He he played uh, cricket and football with with the members of the um, uh, Aboriginal community. Um, but even he, in the end, got uh, quite upset with uh, Pompey Austin, for example, because uh, he was saying things like, well, I've, I've given him all this backing, I've, I've encouraged him, and now he's, uh, he's always working on weak minds and leading them astray. Um, so that uh, uh, the, the idea that, uh, you know, the colonial masters uh, simply imposed their sports on indigenous people uh, as part of a civilizing mission really doesn't capture what is actually going on. And um, I may have to apologize to my readers, Keith, about the weight of empirical evidence I throw at them. I mean, uh, I, I just want wanted to demonstrate the um, breadth, the depth, and the richness of the source material. Um, so I, I quite deliberately, um, particularly in the early sections of the book, uh, have a great deal of um, the hard evidence that comes out of newspapers, even though it comes from uh, the white men. It doesn't come from the indigenous people directly. What I would hope is that now that I've written that book, that some young indigenous people today with an interest in football might take that book as a, a sort of starting point and tell the story from their unique perspective. Because Keith, I can't think black. I, I, I can write about what I have learned from these Gubba uh, white men's sources. Uh, I've tried to be as uh, understanding as I can be of how indigenous people related to the games that they took up. But uh, it's not given to me uh, to think from their perspective with all the knowledge and history they have behind them. But I think as a method of teaching, taking young people from uh, what they know now into what they don't know um, is a good pedagogical model. And if the indigenous people uh, can overlook um, my uh, criticism of the, the man group myth um, and concentrate on the evidence that is there about their ancestors and how they related um, to their oppressors, um, then I, I think it, it would result in something that would be of real value, not just to the indigenous people of Australia, but to Australians as a whole. I think our history is impoverished when this does not exist. I get the feeling that despite all that has happened, indigenous people have not imposed their concept of history on uh, European uh, white Australians. Certainly throughout the book, you you highlight places where you think, oh, if only there, or, or in the future perhaps, uh, if there were an indigenous Australian who were versed in indigenous methods, could use or could could gather and use and, and produce oral histories, um, we might know more here. 
Absolutely. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing you also do throughout, throughout your book. And so just for readers who are going, okay, well, this sounds great. Um, uh, I, I accept that there's, there's some notion that I accept the idea of indigenous agency, but they still have some notion that, um, well, if there's all this agency, where's, where is the, where is colonial power? Uh, I, I want to, I want to turn back to that because you do show again and again, the kind of systemic bias that undermined or, or made more difficult indigenous efforts to play sports, not only inside of their missions, but especially when indigenous athletes wanted to travel outside of their missions. And of course, if they wanted to, to compete on the very top levels uh, in the VFL, VFA, um, that, that was almost an impossibility. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what kind of obstacles to indigenous agency or what kind of obstacles indigenous Australians indigenous athletes in the 19th century faced. Yeah, um, I, I actually opened the book with a story about um, the celebratory meeting of um, the Victorian uh, Football League in um, uh, 1908 when uh, the president uh, stood up and uh, described his organization as probably the greatest, most impressive sporting organization the world had ever known, um, and how it had risen to this pinnacle without uh, blemish. Um, and yet the very first item of business that's reported after that is a flat refusal to countenance a request from the Aborigines of Lake Tyres um, to play games against uh, metropolitan Melbourne clubs. Because that is the only way that Indigenous people would have been able to achieve parity um, by playing regularly at the top level. And this was denied to them consistently. And, and it's still, there is still remnants of that today. For example, in, in Victoria, um, uh, indigenous people are, uh, indigenous footballers are underrepresented, whereas they're highly overrepresented among the Noongar of Western Australia and in South Australia. And in, of course, in, in the Northern Territory and the Tiwi Islands. Um, and I try to bring this out that, um, there are strong social forces that inhibit, uh, attempts by indigenous people to get regular involvement and regular consistent involvement at the highest levels. And so they are effectively confined um, to the local leagues, uh, which eventually they become good enough to win. And in the case of Kamaragunja, um, they win the Western Amoira League five times out of six and are promptly handicapped by the local league who insist that they don't play anybody over 25 in the team. So even at the local level, these obstacles are continually being imposed on them. Um, and I try to get a balance between um, assessing and uh, um, uh, trying to uh, show the successes that they managed to achieve, but keeping in mind that this uh, is, they are 
if you like, they are confined to bush football. Um, and and it, this is not because of the lack of skill, um, uh, the, the fact that they can learn the games and, and play them, uh, but they are not allowed to get to a higher level, either as individuals um, or as teams. Yeah, um, we could go on about all of the limitations that you you bring out in your work um, at the station level with the prohibitions on mixing uh, between uh, mixed race and, 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 and completely indigenous people up through the VFL, but I should push us along because I know you are anxious to talk about the Marnbrook myth, <laughs> as you're oh. calling it, um, but we have to we have to address it because it, uh, it, it comes up in, in your work and it's going to be the thing that I think, at least for readers uh, in Australia, sticks out for them. And so yes. I, I want I want to give you ample time to explain what you mean by that and to convince uh, those of us who might be a little bit skeptical or, or at least those of us who are buying into the Marngrook myth, uh, as you call it. And I, I count myself as a person who buys into it. But your book did give me did raise questions for me. So I, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, Keith, just let me say at the outset, if we could find convincing evidence that the indigenous game in Australia uh, had a direct connection um, to the game that was codified by members of the Melbourne Cricket Club and others in Melbourne in 1859, precociously early. If we could find these links, um, nobody would be happier than I would be. But unfortunately, um, there really is nothing more than some vague similarity between the game of Mangrook in particular. There are actually other Aboriginal games which have skills that are more like uh, what was needed to play football in the early days than Mangrook, and most of these are totally ignored. I'll say a bit about them in a minute. But um, I can find descriptions of games being played in Scotland in the middle of the 19th century, which look much closer to the game of Australian uh, football as codified in Melbourne than anything that comes out of uh, Mangrook. Now, uh, the story did not exist until Jim Poulter uh, floated it um, uh, in uh, 1983, the first uh, iteration. Jim uh, was mining family history. He, he was not a professional historian, but he had uh, members of his family who saw indigenous corroborees around Melbourne, probably the last large-scale uh, corroborees and so on. And he became intrigued about connections between uh, what he, they were telling him uh, and uh, the, the origins of the Australian game. Uh, and and uh, since then, people have searched for evidence that would support this thesis. Most recently, people like David Thompson 
uh, Jenny Hawking and Nell Reedy. Um, the latter two uh, found uh, a, an interesting, or refound an interesting uh, piece of information in um, the papers of A.W. Howitt, one of the early uh, really anthropologists. Um, although uh, he didn't have any formal training in anthropology, but um, he did so extraordinary good early work um, in the 19th century. Um, and this uh, showed that a fellow called Johnny Connolly uh, played football in the Western District of Victoria, um, that uh, his family took part, his uh, mother and uh, uh, cousins, uh, female, uh, played with and against them. Uh, and, and so this seemed to hint that perhaps uh, that was the game that a young Tommy Wills uh, played in uh, uh, his uh, father's um, station in the Western District of Victoria. And of course, Tommy Wills is sent by his father off to rugby school in England um, to become an English gentleman and a lawyer and uh, raise the family status um, beyond what his father could manage. And uh, so the suggestion is that when it came to write down the rules, Tommy remembered um, what he had learned as a child before he went to rugby um, and hence was the conduit between the indigenous game and the European game. The only problem about that is that there is nothing in Tommy's voluminous writings, uh, both um, uh, to his family and to, to the press. He was a, a, an inveterate uh, correspondent. Nothing in that even hints at uh, indigenous links. And there is nothing in any of the aspects of the game that he wanted to introduce or did introduce uh, subsequently that reflects uh, the indigenous game. Um, uh, things like the crossbar, a designated kicker, um, positional play, None of these are aspects of the Mangrook or similar games, as far as we know. So, and, and of course, if you focus on Tommy Wills, this is just the classic um, personalization, uh, finding a, a single individual who is the inventor of um, whatever um, aspect of human history you want to uh, examine. Uh, we all love to do this, to personalize the process of invention or innovation. Um, so I've tried in the last stages of the book to broaden the perspective a bit, ask people to look at similar um, uh, mythical uh, connections between uh, indigenous cultural activities and modern sports. Many of them uh, simply uh, uh, do not translate beyond the, the uh, 
social context in which they take place. Um, and I quote Tutsi high jumping, thanks to John Bale. Uh, I talk about um, uh, Kuju and uh, other games in, in uh, China that seem to be predecessors of, of golf. Um, and try and explain how these cultural activities may have a link with modern sports, but more often uh, really have no connection whatsoever. So it's not just the Mangrook uh, story that um, tries to narrow a debate about where sport, uh, modern sport comes from. Um, and uh, I... I also uh, try and uh, r replace that idea with the clear evidence um, that when the game began, the indigenous people saw the white men playing, thought that they could do it, and forced their way into it in the missions and stations around the country. I think this is a much more fruitful area of future research. And if I can, through this book, help to achieve that, I'll, I'll be very happy. Um, I don't say abandon the search for man-group links, um, but please, let's look at what actually happened. The game as it was played in the early days in Victoria was a low-level kicking and scrummaging game the things that caused injury were um, kicking and hacking, and they were very quickly um, uh, ruled out, uh, banned by the rules. They didn't disappear. I mean, Tommy Wills is still uh, thinking about hacking in the, the mid-1860s. But my point is that the game was very unlike the game we know today. Um, and if you think about it, uh, if it's played on rough paddocks with rocks and stones and uh, uneven bits, uh, the description of uh, the, the uh, Geelong football field has cat tracks, uh, ruts, uh, rocks, stones, goodness knows what all on the pitch. If you want to injure yourself, the surest way to do it is to compete for the ball with your feet off the ground. Um, and that's what jumping for the ball for Mangrook uh, involved. Um, as late as 1876, Tom Jones, writing in The Footballer about um, a, a long guide to various um, positional plays and, and to players, says jumping for the ball is dangerous, don't do it. Now, if it were a common practice, then he wouldn't say that sort of thing. It must have been that, that the 1870s was when the jumping for the ball came in. Now, this is 15 years after um, the, the game is codified in Melbourne, and Melbourne rules have become... Uh, common uh, throughout uh, Victoria. If you think about it more broadly too, in the 1880s, a team often described um, as the first British Lions arrive in Australia ostensibly to play rugby, 
But they also play Australian rules against uh, Victorian teams. When they started, they couldn't play the game. But by the time they finish, they are competitive to the extent that they are running the top VFL teams, um, sorry, VFA teams like Essendon, uh, very close. Uh, Similarly, uh, when uh, the people from New South Wales come down to Victoria uh, to play uh, Carlton uh, in in, uh, the the early uh, period in the 1870s, um, they get thumped uh, at uh, footy, um, but they uh, win the game they play at rugby. Uh, They played Carlton at both rugby and at uh, Australian rules. Uh, similarly, uh, when they played the previous year in in Sydney, uh, the the the, the, the Waratahs win at rugby but lose at footy. But by the end of the second uh, game at footy, they are getting close uh, to the Victorian team. So in the same way, it seems to me, Aboriginal people had to learn how to play the white man's game. And when they did, they were extremely successful at it in the local areas where they managed uh, to get a chance to play regularly. And it's only regular play that will enable them to reach the higher standards. Well, I think um, people who are invested in the debate, and and this is a debate that goes right to the heart of, uh, in some ways, of Australian uh, nationhood or certainly of Victorian uh, identity and and puts it up against the question of indigeneity. People who are interested in this question, who have read the Hawking and the Reedy, should should read the Hay to to get the other side. And, And... um, certainly it, it did give me a lot to think about, although I, I come from a, a, a different, a different perspective. So I was, I was maybe more convinced by some of the linguistic connections between Mamarki and marking and things like that. And I, I, I wish we had more time to discuss these, um, because I do think that this is a, a rich topic for conversation, but to bring it back, uh, not not the point of the book, actually. And and what you do is, I think, much more important. And people who are only here for the Marncrook uh, part of our conversation and who didn't maybe, who, who who ran through the beginning should go back and listen to that. Because what you're doing, uh, Roy, is really um, much more important, which is showing the presence of indigenous football, continuous presence from the 19th century until today, uh, from the very origins of the game until until the present. Um, the only question that I have left, and it's a question I ask uh, everyone here on the show is what are you up to next, uh, Roy? What can we look forward to hearing from you next? Well, umpteen different things. Uh, (laughs) I've been writing about match fixing and soccer and, uh, I, I, I embarked on, uh, something that's been intriguing me, um, it's a piece called Parallel Lives about the Flanagans and the McIlvanies. Now, uh, two sets of brothers born at the opposite ends of the globe, 
One of them becomes the novelist of his generation. The other becomes the sports writer of his generation. They never met. Uh, Richard Flanagan, Booker Prize winner for The Narrow Road to the Deep North. Martin Flanagan, sports writer extraordinaire, biographer of um, Tommy Wills, um, uh, a lovely uh, writer. Uh, he actually nearly met the McIlvannies. He had four weeks on a building site in Glasgow. And while he read Hugh McIlvanny, he never met him. Uh, I, I said to Martin, I thought the, the word was that you'd spent four years in a building site in Glasgow. He says, no, no, I wasn't that tough. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, the, the McIlvannies... Uh, two brothers in, in a bigger family in, in Scotland. Um, Hugh, the elder, becomes not only the sports writer of the year seven times, I think, but becomes journalist of the year in the United Kingdom. Uh, writes brilliantly on uh, football, on boxing, on horse racing, Ghost writes one of uh, Alec Ferguson's uh, autobiography. Um, my father taught him at school um, and uh, realized he was much brighter than uh, he should be in that uh, particular secondary uh, school. Um, whereas Hugh, uh, whereas William, rather, the younger uh, brother, went straight to Kilmarnock Academy. And uh, uh, Hugh had a year at Kilmarnock Academy before uh, uh, William before he finished school, and that got him his first job on the Kilmarnock Standard, and then from there to the Scotsman, and then to Sunday Times and the Observer. Um, William McIlvanny uh, wrote. Um, a series of uh, excellent novels. And he's also the inventor, if you like, of Tartan Noir, which he insisted had an E on the end as well. Um, and we devoured his books uh, when we were living in, uh, in Glasgow in the 70s. Um, and uh, he... he uh, is now uh, lionized by people like um, uh, Ian Rankin, um, Val McDermott. Um, Irving Welsh from Train Spotting tells you how much he appreciated the, the work of uh, William McIlvanny. So I, I'm intrigued by that. The, the two families. They've got Irish heritage, but they're fiercely nationalistic, uh, Scottish and uh, Australian, uh, fiercely proud of their working class origins and use um, family uh, lore and knowledge uh, in intriguing ways in uh, their writing. So I talked about that project to the sports historians at Bathurst uh, a couple of weeks ago got some good advice on where I might go with it. I, I don't know whether, Keith, this is me really finding out about myself or whether I'm finding out about them <laughs> because I come from the west of Scotland myself. Um, 
But I'm all also, of our projects are a little bit about ourselves, aren't they? Of, of course they are. Of course they are. You can't escape from that. And uh, I think it, at the very least it gives you the orientation at the beginning. But uh, And you will know this too, that once you get caught up in the chase, it leads in the most strange and un, unsuspected uh, directions. That it does. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Roy. We have been speaking with Roy Hay, the author of Aboriginal People and Australian Football in the 19th Century. They did not come from nowhere. And uh, just a final spruik uh, or a final promotion. Roy's book will be on uh, offer with Cambridge, uh, with Cambridge scholars, uh, publishers, the rest of July. So if you hear this and you're interested and you want to know more about the long indigenous history of Australian rules football, uh, now is the time to pick it up because there, there, is, a, there is a special going. Uh, so thank you again for joining us, Roy. Been a delight, Keith. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in Sports. This is Keith Rathbone coming to you from McQuarrie University. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.